Welcome to Inaudible. My name is Jeremy Wyland. My co-host, Ryan Masterson, is on parental leave. On this podcast, we discuss the weird, beautiful channeled messages found in the archives of LL Research. The archives contain transcripts of messages from allegedly discarnate sources who claim to hail from an organization they call the Confederation of Planets in service to the Infinite Creator. If you would like an audio version of the transcripts, please subscribe to Ryan's other podcast, Living Love and Light, available on all platforms. Ryan and I, along with our guest, will try to provide analysis and commentary on the philosophy described in these messages, identifying the common themes, and grappling with the application of this information to our human lives. Thanks for joining us on this journey, and it gives me great pleasure once again to introduce our guest uh, for today, uh, Joseph D'Artez, who is a PhD student in philosophy. Uh, he joined us uh, a couple of episodes ago uh, on the archetypal mind and understanding the archetypes through the tool of the tarot. And uh, today we're going to have a somewhat different topic, but it deals a little bit more with uh, Joseph's area of interest in philosophy, which has to do with uh, truth claims, uh, how to evaluate them, and what and in, in our in our case, uh, studying this information, what role uh, concepts like resonance and discernment play in all of that? So, first of all, Joseph, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. So, I'd like to jump right into this um, because I think that in conversing uh, with you, I found some really good touch points for uh, where we should be thinking about how to. Uh, address these issues. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about uh, where you're at on these questions of, uh, you know, truth claims, resonance? Like, where are you coming from in your uh, research and study? Okay. Um, well, so this very project was motivated by um, witnessing a recent fracture in the Law of One community between people who um, found themselves deeply committed, uh, perhaps even fundamentally committed, to um, certain sort of conspiratorial um, information. And, and you find this in the raw material. You find a lot, like Don asking lots of questions about uh, aliens and secret government operations and so on. <clears throat> so there's the people who, who have found that aspect of the material compelling on the one side, and then on the other side, uh, of that fracture, the the people who have come to um, be worried about how quick we can be, uh, especially in sort of the New Age community, to accept conspiratorial sort of claims or to accept uh, alternative narratives of history. Uh, you find this within the Confederation. You'll find plenty of um, heterodox descriptions of human history. <clears throat> and so the question in my mind, uh, and the question that this brought up for me in witnessing this fracture happen over the past five years or so was how much of what a channeled entity says should we be willing to believe? And if not believe, is there something weaker um, that we should also be concerned about? So so the question is, is something like a, an ethics of belief, um, but it's also not just about belief, at least in my mind, because I think there are different modes of committing to uh, claims that might be weaker than belief, but could also be dangerous. Um, so acceptance, for example, is generally considered weaker than belief. 
but is it dangerous to accept a claim, especially if um, you have not very much evidence supporting the claim? So this this um, uh, set up the problem for me, and it was convenient for me. Like this was a convenient problem for me to have because I, I happened to be in a place in my PhD program where I needed to write a dissertation. Um, so it was good to have a uh, a problem that I wanted to at least uh, explore. I should also say that my baseline judgment, um, my assumption going into the whole thing, um, and, and this could turn out to be wrong, but my assumption is um, something like, well, it's safe to accept or believe things that channeled entities say about metaphysical stuff, um, but you should be skeptical or at least uh, willing to um, to disbelieve if evidence should prove otherwise or should show, should suggest otherwise claims that entities make uh, about uh, history and science so so I've, I've set up a kind of like ethical distinction between uh, spirituality and metaphysics on the one hand and uh, science and history on the other hand now I, i'm i don't know if this is how it's going like i don't know exactly what direction the dissertation is going to go but this is the way i'm thinking about it does that and does that answer your question? It, it does in quite a bit of detail, and uh, I'm particularly interested in this uh, bifurcation that you're making between um, how claims that have metaphysical import are handled versus claims that, I guess, from your point of view, have some sort of like uh, Popperian testability or, uh, their falsifiability or something like that. Is that, is that kind of what you're thinking? That's right. And <clears throat> so I can, I can give you a sense of why I'm drawing this distinction in the first place. And it has everything to do with the concept of, uh, epistemic virtue. So where the word epistemic refers to, um, the, the act, the human attempt to know that's, that's the, what epistemic means. So an epistemic virtue would be a, um, a habit or a disposition that it's good to have in your attempt to know things. So, for example, some common epistemic virtues would be um, intelligibility. So uh, you want to make sure that, that the things you believe actually make sense and can even be communicated to other people. Uh, open-mindedness is another common uh, intellectual virtue, uh, one that obviously the New Age community prizes. Uh, another intellectual virtue is uh, rationality. So you have to make sure that, um, the things that you believe are consistent and not contradicting each other. Uh, there's, there's other virtues as well, but, but you get the idea. Okay. So from the perspective of epistemic virtue, um, you can ask the question, well, do I have a reason to believe, uh, claim at claim P, right? So here's this claim and we'll just call it P. Do I have a reason to believe P? And in terms of uh, the claim, a historical or a scientific claim, um, there's there's these um, there's this machinery that we've built up for assessing whether or not you have a reason to believe P. And it seems to me that um, what a channeled entity says uh, will not be able to uh, outweigh that machinery that we've already built up, the scientific and historical machinery for um, deciding whether or not P is credible. But when it comes to claims about spirituality and metaphysics, we don't have any kind of machinery like that. Uh, and so those kinds of claims are much more um, tenuous, 
perhaps there's there's just you can't you can't easily um, line up evidence on one side or the other in terms of spiritual and metaphysical claims, which means that your reasons for accepting a claim um, don't have to be as strong. You can, it seems to me, uh, believe a claim, a metaphysical claim, on the basis of what a trusted channeled entity says, because there's no counterweighing evidence that suggests otherwise. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, with the idea being that in the physical world, in the world of uh, more academic concerns or more quotidian concerns, uh, the whole idea is to come to a kind of uh, consensus, right? On what things are happening, what things are false, um, not 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 uh, strictly, but as some sort of working agreement that moves us forward in the uh, collection and categorization of knowledge, right? And then when it comes to metaphysical stuff, it tends to get so subjective and intractable that we uh, are often searching for metaphors just to convey an idea to each other. Uh, let alone trying to get down to the to the roots of the idea itself. Does does that am, am I am I making a similar uh, distinction that you are? Yeah, that sounds that sounds exactly right to me. Okay, so we're not concerned about um, you know the ep epistemic virtue of you know laws of physics or uh, you know. Uh, experiments going on right now or even things like you know in the realm of politics or the humanities we are going way 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 out there when we're talking about channeled entities so i i where i would like to start is uh your thoughts on the entire concept of channeling itself this should be uh in many ways uh the the primary research, so to speak, on uh, the, the kinds of concepts we're going to be dealing with as we talk about um, confederation philosophy, metaphysical concepts, those things that we are going to accept as true in that metaphysical sense. What are your thoughts on uh, the our ability to evaluate channeled entities at all, first of all? And second of all, um, what kind of principles would be useful when we're looking at that information? Right. So, I mean, this is tricky territory. Um, in the first place, there's the constant danger uh, in just contacting a channeled entity that what you're contacting um, isn't actually a source of truth at all. And of course, that's the reason for the attunement and the challenging protocols. Now, that's from the side of the one doing the channeling. Um, as someone who has uh, done channeling, I've kind of come to the conclusion that if you're going to accept uh, the claims that a channeled entity makes then it only seems appropriate that you should engage in the act yourself to discover um, the, the temptations that, that are there. I mean, if, if you're not, if all you're doing is closing your eyes and saying whatever comes to you or doing automatic writing, there's really no telling what's going to come out. Um, and to, to ascribe um, those kinds of, or whatever comes out, to ascribe truth value to that, to say, oh, this is this is true because it came from from somewhere else, um, strikes me as dangerous. Uh, if if you haven't experienced the the ability to um, 
put words into the mouth of a channeled entity if you so wish. And yet we've both done that, right? We've both done that in our metaphysical journeys, haven't we? Can you say what you mean by we've both done that? Uh, We have both uh, attributed, I believe, truth value to claims from channeled entities before the time that we got a personal sense of what it means to channel, right? That's right. And, And notice that what I'm talking about here primarily is conscious channeling. I do think that there's something different going on with unconscious channeling with with um uh trans channeling because in that case if the person really is unconscious then there is no opportunity to influence uh whatever comes through but then of course it still raises the question of what exactly is coming through right and what what you what we have primarily is the story that the channeled entity tells um so this channeled entity will tell a story about themselves and um Maybe we believe it. Maybe we take them on their word. And and so in my mind, um, you should apply the very same uh, evaluative criteria to a channeled entity's self-attributions as you would to um, some expert at something, whatever, um, say some spiritual leader, sure, uh, who who can't be... Uh, evaluated in any other, any other way. So like there's, so in the case of a channeled entity, there's, there's no um, community of higher dimensional beings that you can ask and say, is this really the same entity? Um, the way that you could say with a physicist, you could, you could examine um, or you could look up whether a physicist is um, discredited within the scientific community of physicists, right? So you have this other community that, that can, that can um, give you a way of grounding the claims that the physicist makes. So this physicist, this discredited physicist, claims to be an expert in the field. You can look at what other physicists say and discover for yourself that maybe this person isn't actually an expert. But you can't do that with a channeled entity, just like you can't do it with a spiritual leader. Just because there is no uh, accredited or well-established community of experts that can then uh, confer or remove their approval of this one particular expert. So I think you're in the same sort of conundrum with a channeled entity. And so the question becomes, well, on what basis should I even accept the claims that this entity makes about itself? And um, the principle that I've come to is a kind of um, spiritual respectability. And, and, and I'm I don't like to use the word respectability, so I'm using it in a very uh, measured way here. And what I mean is, um, for any spiritual leader, in my opinion, um, I would not accord them uh, credibility in spiritual matters unless I had a kind of admiration for them on multiple different levels. Um, So a great example here would be Ra. There's a reason that, that I accord credibility to the things that Ra says, and that has a lot to do with the way Ra actually sort of lives up to to their own um, ideals. So um, Ra will, will admit that there's, there's lots of things they don't know. Um, Ra will be very careful to not um, get into personal things that uh, it's not really their business to be talking about. Ra will... Um, Ra said, don't advertise. Ra said, um, what else? There was one more thing that was that I had in mind. 
they're pretty they're pretty shaky on dates and numbers and that kind of thing i kind of find that to be an interesting limitation that they've placed upon themselves right yeah so ra doesn't present themselves as like all powerful or all knowing or, or anything like that um and this and this is the kind of thing that you sh- that i think you should look for in an expert is ad- admission of fallibility and I yeah. think we should expect that, that very same fallibility from channeled sources as we would from human beings. Yeah, kind of like a um, a cataloging of, okay, here are all the areas in which I'm not going to be helpful to you so that we can get clear on what information will be helpful to you. And and like it's it's a way in which it strikes me that if the channeled entity shows interest, not simply in giving you good, true information, but also information that's going to be useful to you where you are right now, that seems to me to also be a tell of what kind of entity you're dealing with. I mean, remember that confederation entities are always saying that the more it gets into specifics, uh, the transient stuff, the more it gets into negative doom and gloom, conspiratorial stuff, uh, you know, the more that it is going to detune things. And then it's almost, Joseph, like they're saying, you decide how true you want us to be by the questions you ask, by the topics you give us, by the uh, energy that you're bringing to the conversation itself. Right. And 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 you actually reminded me of the thing that I was, the, the extra thing on my list, <laughs> which is that whenever Rise asked about um, aliens or conspiracy theory or Earth history, um, Ra says, look, this stuff is not important, but since you're asking, we'll tell you. And um, notice that in the Confederation uh, contacts, you have the same sort of uh, bifurcation that I had mentioned earlier and had given reasons to, to accept. And you have these, these channel entities saying, um, you know, don't ask us about science and history. Ask us about metaphysics and spirituality. Um, because if you ask about the science and history, then you put your, the, this contact itself at risk. And I suppose that as a philosopher, uh, the fact that channeled entities stay to that more narrow uh, subject matter is particularly interesting to you in the sense that as a philosopher, I would imagine you deal with a lot of different approaches and ideas that different philosophers bring to their peers for some sort of consideration. If somebody has, like, say, an approach to a problem or uh, an idea about a model for like how to think about something that itself doesn't necessarily have like truth value can only be evaluated in these sort of like more rote ways that you listed non-contradiction intelligibility, you know, that kind of stuff. So I wonder, are there any tools in philosophy uh, from your studies that you apply to uh, channeled messages or the, uh, the, the, the reputation or veracity of different channeled entities that would be helpful for us to hear about. Yes. Actually, there's a very important tool that I don't think gets uh, nearly enough attention in, um, I would say, in, in either uh, metaphysical communities, or that is communities of spiritual seekers, or in the philosophy of religion. And that's the, um, the concept of an error theory. So, here's an example of the usefulness of a concept of an error theory. Now, an error theory, by the way, is um, 
a theory that explains or, or just an explanation of why most people get something wrong. So if you want to say this is the true story, but most people disbelieve it, you need to explain why most people disbelieve it. That's what an error theory does. How do we make the error? Okay. So in our case, um, the error is something like um, the, the, the illusion of third density. Like he, here we are in this material world and it seems like it's just a material world. Why should we believe that there's some other spiritual world that is not only um, immaterial, but also in some way prior to the material world? Why on earth should we believe that? Right. And so you need an error theory to explain it. Um, and, and actually we can extend this very question of the, the illusion to uh, an epistemic frame. So that's a, an ontological frame, the question of what exists. But in the epistemic frame, there's, there's a, a very similar question, and it goes like this. Why should it be that um, what is appropriate and even beneficial and even best for me to believe or accept, why should it be that these things have no evidence? In other words, why should I think that faith has any value since faith is kind of like non-evidential? And it, it seems when you when you reflect on what we should believe and when you when you examine what happens or when you look in history at what happens when people accept claims without evidence, uh, it, it tends to be disastrous because um, you have people just believing things that are entirely unmoored from reality and are product. I mean, you can see it happening now. Um, that the the disaster that that comes about when people believe things without evidence or without much evidence. Well, it seems like so there's seemed, like a great desire, like there like there there's a lot of belief motivated by a desire to believe that thing, right? That's right. And faith can look that same way. Like why sure. why should we think of faith as anything else but wishful thinking? This is this is the common atheistic refrain. And and I think that in order to really give a satisfying answer, you need to have an error theory on hand. You need to explain why um not just by appeal to like some mysterious divine will, like just that's what God wants. I think you need a better explanation. You need to say like, what really is the benefit of of faith? And you need to distinguish that the ben like the beneficial nature of faith from the dangerous uh, nature of just wishful thinking. Like th these things need to be separated from each other, and you need it. And people need to have a good reason to believe. Um, or to, to think that one of them is good and the other is bad. So we need a robust error theory. Did I answer your question? What was the question? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, I'm not sure that I remember the question because I got so caught up in this idea of the precision of the error theory as a reason for, or as a, as a way to talk about what would it even mean for us to be wrong uh, in interpreting a channeled entity or in getting the wrong information from them or whatever. But I think that was the idea was what ideas and philosophy do you apply to this problem? And you laid the that tools, out very clearly. Right. Yeah. So that, that to me seems very, uh, uh, clear and useful because it, what it implies to me is that there's kind of, a, an implicit alignment, uh, between all of all philosophers ends and the ways that they kind of like link their utility of an idea up with somebody else's utility it has to be borne out by other people as something useful and of sufficient explanatory value. And that to me strikes, uh, strikes me as true in this matter too, that as long as the Confederation's general interests and ours can match up a little bit, 
that we have an idea of, of, of how we would judge something as true or not. But I saw you shaking your head, so correct me. <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to communi- communicate to my son. Oh, okay, gotcha, yeah. Okay, um, what were we talking about? We were talking about, okay, so now we have this idea of the error theory, that there's uh, some sort of error theory that would be articulable about the Confederation's message, right? Oh, right, yeah. So, and I think, actually, I think that um, whatever story the Confederation tells, any any entity in the Confederation has to, in some sense, amount to an error theory. Like, it has to be an error theory. I mean, of course, it's got to be more than that, um, but it needs to explain why the why we live in why we live in upside down world, right? Why we should believe things um, with apparently insufficient evidence, and why we should think that the um, metaphysical is prior to the material when these things are not obviously true, and we don't have strong apparently have strong reasons to believe them. In other words, the the Confederation narrative needs to give us reason to think that faith really is a virtue basically okay that i mean that that plays right in hand in glove with um what i was saying about our interests being aligned right that there's some sort of like interest that the confederation entities might have that's in line with our interest and it allows us to like kind of connect up okay well what would it mean for us to go off the rails with each other right <laughs> right yeah, and and this this various various there's various elements of the Confederation story that that do this work. So like the, the moral polarity, for example, does this work. It explains um, why our interests and the Confederation entities' interests are aligned, and so on. Like I, I don't want to get into all that, but I mean, if you sure. if you're looking at the at the story with a mind for an error theory, you can find it. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I'm not going to uh, pin you down to, like, state what the error theory is. <laughs> it's enough to know that there are these, like, uh, lanes that we can go in to, to, to evaluate these different ideas. Um, but I think that the big thing that we want to move to now is uh, the big signal, the big indicator of truth that we often use. And it's this concept, right, of resonance. What is resonance and uh, what is it that resonance indicates that should give us some idea of uh, measurement of veracity, right? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes. All right. Here we enter the complicated issue. So in the first place, notice that the word resonance is a is metaphorical. Um, it implies a, a kind of similarity or an analogy to a physical uh, interaction. So the physical interaction that it analogizes is when two things are are vibrating, and they're vibrating in some sense at different frequencies, um, and and they, through their interaction, uh, achieve a kind of unison. Um, and so there's the sociologist I've been drawing on in my work. Uh, his name is Hartmut Rosa. Um, he has a book called. Um, the resonance, the sociology of, what does he call it? Sociology of our relationship to the world. Anyway, um, he likes to use the analogy of two metronomes set on a, uh, a thin board of wood, and that thin board of wood is then set on two, um, two like Coke cans that, that allow it to, to roll, basically. So the idea is that the metronomes 
are on top of this um, movable structure. And if you set these two metronomes to different frequencies, what will happen is after a while, they will eventually uh, both approach the same frequency. The slower one will, will speed up a little bit and the, and the faster one will slow down a little bit, which is weird because you didn't set the metronomes to do that. It's the motion of the, um, of the surface that they share uh, that causes it. So the idea here is that, and this is, this is the notion of resonance that, that Rose is getting at, you have two things um, that both, as he, as he says it, speak with their own voice and mutually affect one another so that they uh, become uh, more and more attuned to each other. So there's this, um, this mutual, mutual interaction, and it, it can't just be one way. It has to be two way. You following yeah, so that far? makes sense. Absolutely, like a sympathetic vibration kind of thing, where they're like precisely. Yeah, and and, and isn't it weird? Um, this this happens all the time in Confederation philosophy that physical <laughs> con physical seeming concepts um, are used to explain more metaphysical principles or uh, 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 things that we would normally consider to be like a cognitive thing, or right? Like. I mean, I would think that the, the reason is, is that, well, if everything is vibration, including our thoughts, including, you know, the energy that we experience as emotion and, and all that, then at some level, do you think that they are implying that there is a literal resonance or do you think it's only useful to use this as a metaphor? Um, so metaphor isn't exclusive to the uh, spirit, to spiritual traditions. Uh, you'll find it all throughout uh, philosophical work, as you suggested, um, that attempts to describe uh, non-physical phenomena, the mental. And I think, I don't think that we should look for a kind of literalness. Like, maybe there's there's some, well, almost undoubtedly, when you and I are speaking to one another, there's like some physical event of resonance, but I don't think that that it's going to be very helpful to explain the the feeling of resonance that you and I might have as mental and spiritual creatures. Um, so so okay. I think trying to make it literal might be a mistake. Um, yeah, like a literal substrate that's resonating, right? Like that's that's not yeah. an important thing, especially when we're talking about truth claims, right? I think instead what these kinds of metaphors are trying to do is to set up a, uh, a structure for thinking that is supposed to be um, applicable both to the um, physical analog and to the thing that you really want to describe. And for lack of a better word, we just use the, the physics-y word because there's, our, there's this already well-developed uh, technical vocabulary that we can appropriate from um, the physical sciences. So I think it has a lot to do with the development of the physical sciences and the underdevelopment of the, we'll call it metaphysical or spiritual disciplines. Yeah, that's fair enough. Okay. So that's the basis of resonance. Um, what does resonance have to say about veracity and truth value? Yeah, so that's tricky. Um, um, oh, yeah, so I'm try what I'm trying to do is to, or what I was hoping to do, is to not get into too many complex technical issues, but I might need to. That's fine. So, so here's the thought, right? Um, when you resonate with something, uh, there's something true about it. And, and you, this is, you'll see this in the Confederation messages, the, the suggestion that there's a kind of like personal truth and that the way to, to discover that you've, you've found a personal truth is through this sense of resonance where 
you you have this um, this relationship with some, we'll just say some idea. Maybe it's a relationship with a channeled entity where um, the entity speaks with its own voice, as Rosa would say, and it feels in some sense alive to you, like you can work with this. And then so you make what that channeled entity said uh, somehow your own. And in response to it making this this message your own, you might um, you might expect, say, uh, a different sort of message to come back from the channeled entity, or you might even uh, find yourself attracted to a different channeled entity. In other words, there's there's a um, reciprocal uh, uh, change that occurs with the resonance. So, in in taking on the message, you make it your own, and in making it your own, you attract a different message. Are you following? Yes. Yes, this okay. is what you're talking about is the idea of what the resonance means. Yeah, so right now I'm just, just describing what resonance would be in uh, relating relation, your relation to a channel. How entity. we would interpret it, the, the, the phenomenon, yeah. Now, the question that remains for me is, well, okay, so this is what resonance is, and you've got this sort of attraction to a message, and your attraction uh, allows you to make it your own, and then you sort of attract diff a different message thereby. Um, so you can see that there's a kind of um, a path of spiritual development that's suggested here. And, and Ra even mentions this um, a, a few times, and I'm sure it's throughout the Confederation channelings, which is that um, you just have to sort of follow your own uh, spiritual path and the things that you need will be will, will come into your, your awareness as you need them. Um, and that that's basically a statement of um, spiritual resonance. Now, the question that remains is this. Okay, let's let's just grant all that. Now, why should I think that the things that come to me are thereby true? Like, why sh why should resonance be an indicator of truth? Right. And one thing you can do, and this is what I've seen suggested in Confederation channelings, although I'm not sure that that the entities would commit to this. What I've seen suggested is, well, it's just a matter of what's true for you. So there's a personalization of truth. Now, in personalizing truth, that means that truth can't be absolute. There's not one true truth. And that suggests that what's true for you doesn't necessarily apply to anyone else. Now, philosophers are pretty uneasy with this concept. Like, some of them will use this concept of truth, but most of them, by far the majority, um, are committed to the idea that there's one way that the world is, whatever way it is, like whatever it is, and that's the truth. And there's no... There's no room for um, like personal differences in the way the world is. So here's a solution to that problem. Um, when I'm talking about my truth, all I'm talking about is the way that my inner world is. So I'm not describing the world outside of me. I'm describing my own sort of conceptualization of that world, and that's my truth. Well, in that case, all we're talking about is a representation of the world. So in that case, it's the representation that that, and, and I'm I'm not even sure I'd call that a truth. I think it's kind of a misnomer. Um, I would call that a representation, um, and what the representation represents is, hopefully, the truth, right? Or or anyway, it's it tries to get it right. So a representation can be accurate or inaccurate uh, by degrees. Are we talking by representation? Are you referring to something that might we might otherwise represent as like a model, like a? Like a like a consistent way that we approach the world. I do think in terms of models, I don't think you have to think of a representation as a model. That's just how I like to think of them. Um, but what I'm what I have in mind here is is 
the way you conceptualize, say, um, the spiritual reality that you can't see, right? Uh, the way you conceptualize uh, the principles by which that spiritual reality operates, uh, the way you conceptualize the various population of metaphysical entities, right? And then there's this sort of picture, if you will, that you have in mind. And it's it can be more or less accurate um, depending on how well that representation, that model matches the reality. But we don't really have any way to compare the two. We just, in principle, would want to. Right. That That's where I was going to go. Um, because once we start talking about these uh, gleaned metaphysical truths amongst ourselves, that's when we get into that kind of like second order hairy issue of truth, right? You and I, for example, have had lots of interesting conversations about what at the end of the day is our shared experience of the sublime, the divine, the metaphysical. Upon what basis do we have that relationship with each other and communication with each other that we can say it, um, that we, that we can say that truth, uh, uh, that, it, that it partakes of truth, right? Can we do that at all? Right. And that's the sticky problem. That's the hard problem. The one that I'm trying to find some kind of answer to, like, I don't, I don't expect to say exactly what can, what can ground resonance in truth. In other words, if some augmentation of your representation of reality, let's say that, that you, you're presented with some channeled entity that gives you a different way of thinking about things, and it strikes you as so profoundly, um, I don't know, resonant, I guess, <laughs> that it's got to be true. Um, why? Why should I think that that profundity indicates or has any kind of connection to whatever my model or to, to the, um, the objective reality that my model is attempting to model? In other words, what connects the model to the reality? And the thought is, well, it's resonance, right? If, if the thing is real, then it'll resonate with you, and that's how you know it's real. Um, and, and I do find this kind of thinking to be a little quick. And I think that the only reason that we would want to use resonance as a guidepost to truth is in the absence of anything else. Right. Now, and, okay, go ahead. Well, I, I'm, I'm thinking about, okay, so we are, if, if, if resonance within ourselves is a standard that we are going to apply, the question is, are is that thing that is resonating standard? Are we able to detect resonance with fidelity? Do you have any thoughts on that? Like, cause that's what I would think, right? It's like, right. am I like, cause if I think about like, you know, uh, you play a note on the keyboard and the strings on the guitar next to you start vibrating. Right. And it's like, well, I know that guitar is tuned. I know that when that resonance obtains, it's because um, it has a particular known resonating quality. The question is, is do I, as a seeker, have a known resonating quality in which that resonance should mean something that I can rely upon? Yes, you're getting into the problem of false resonance. Right. And it is a problem. Um, so one way to think about resonance, and this is... Um, this I think Hartman Rosa is actually drawing on this, uh, and it comes from William James. Uh, William James used to used to talk, or he's dead now, but he talked. He spoke of um, options 
Uh, so the he was concerned with like the the option to believe one thing or its opposite, and he was especially concerned with situations where um, it seemed to be like you didn't. Not only did you not have a choice, you had. In other words, you had to choose one or the other, um, but also there was a lot at stake. That's what he was concerned with, and he drew a distinction between a live and a dead option. And so a live option is one where the two, the two things that you might choose between uh, both seem like real possibilities for you to commit to. I mean, like choose some, some strange uh, religion that strikes you as sort of barbaric. It doesn't feel like a live option to believe that sort of this, to, to really enter into this religion um, because it strikes you as so unbelievable or as so um, discredited. And it does like whatever religion that you think is barbaric, like choose that one, right? And my point there is that that's a dead option. So the key here is that you want the option to be alive. And, and what Rosa thinks is that resonance is a, um, a way of naming that alive quality. So something that's alive for you will have a kind of, will, will resonate. Now this is just a, so far all I've done is basically give a synonym for resonance. But what I'm trying to do is point to a kind of experience. So in other words, resonance itself is experiential, and if you're trying to, to um, define resonance without pointing to an experience, then then you're probably not going to succeed. So the experience that you want to that you want to f- to find is um, it's Rosa calls it. Uh, he distinguishes uh, between a uh, this live quality and muting. Um, he also distinguishes between um, feeling like there's sort of a, a, a like a open possibility versus feeling like um, the world around you is is sort of uh, I don't know depressing and and um, rote. Are we talking about inspiration, perhaps? No, I wouldn't call. It, I mean, probably inspiration is a resonant phenomenon, but mm-hmm. I don't. I wouldn't say that resonance is only inspiration. I think it's a broader phenomenon than that. But there's something about the experience that you're trying to put this label on, to draw upon in some way. There, there, you're trying to put your thumb on something about an experience that um, certifies the claim of resonance, right? Yeah. And so there, there are um, some ways to certify the resonance. So one way to certify the resonance is to look at the experience and ask yourself, did we both speak with our own voices? In other words, did I have some freedom here? Did I have some agency? And the, not only did I have agency, but did the other have agency as well? Um, so in a resonant relationship, um, there isn't a sort of command and follow kind of situation. It's uh, mutual interaction. Uh, and that, of course, already writes off um, any kind of uh, cult-like scenario in which you have this charismatic leader who sort of dictates what the reality is going to be, and the followers just sort of accept it. Well, that can't be resonant, even if the follower themselves um, describes it as resonant. Like maybe they got something from that sort of experience that felt profound, that was even life changing. Um, but because the two, because the follower, the cult follower, is not allowed to speak with their own voice, they can only listen to the cult leader. Basically, because of that, it can't be resonant. So there are some conditions, some external conditions that you can examine, um, and the risk of um, a false resonance is a matter of um, 
only looking at the experience and not determining whether that experience is produced by the kind of conditions that even could produce resonance. Sorry, I feel like I'm making it really complicated. I don't think so. Basically, it sounds like you're saying that you're you're kind of looking back on your experience and you're trying to figure out, is this the kind of thing that would normally uh, be alive for me? Or is this the kind of thing that kind of moves me? It's the same way that the uh, the Confederation says, you know, at the beginning of every single channeling, they say, take what resonates with you and leave the rest behind. They're giving you a choice, but it is a choice that you have to actively make, right? And they are implying, and see, this is where I've been trying to go. They're implying that you are drawing upon something in order to do that and that you have agency in it, that it's not just reading a meter. Right. And that's kind and of where I was going is that like there, there's a there's a task for us in this metaphysical endeavor of uh, communicating with these entities to make ourselves uh, pure and more harmonious so that we can trust our residents better, isn't there? Or did I just yes. skip way ahead? <laughs> no, that's perfectly fine. I think you're right. Um, and actually, this is sort of where my project is going. Um, I suspect that. So here's what I think, and this is what I think I'm going to end up saying, but I haven't, fin I haven't written the dissertation. I've only written like the first couple chapters. Yeah. But I think this is where I'm going to go. Um, so resonance is, in fact, an intellectual virtue. But, or, or I should say not resonance, but following resonance is what I call it. So, so when something resonant, resonates, uh, I think in general, uh, under certain circumstances, you should follow that resonance and pursue this thing, this idea or this conceptualization or this mythology or just a general perspective that resonates. You should pursue that and dig into it. That's what I want to say. But... There's, two, there's at least two caveats, maybe more. The first caveat is you can't expect a thing to always resonate. The resonance has a lifespan. Um, and just, just as you can imagine, say, a friendship running its course, and often it does, um, in just that same way, your relationship to anything can run its course. In other words, there was a time when, the two of, when the, these two things spoke with their own voice and they sort of became sympathetic to one another and they were mutually affecting one another and improving each other's uh, lives. And then, for whatever reason, that experience ended. So following resonance means also being sensitive to when the resonance ends. And I think this is one of the major dangers of false resonance is the expectation that here's this thing that resonates and now it is the thing, um, it is sort of the, the once and for all. I have found my thing, whatever the thing is, right? So that's one danger. The second danger is... Um, so in, the, in virtue ethics or just virtue thinking in the tradition of philosophy in general, there's this concept of the unity of virtues. So the, the and it's, it's a principle. So the principle of the unity of virtues goes like this. You can't have one virtue without at least minimally having all the other virtues. If you did have just that one virtue and not the other virtues minimally, then it wouldn't even be a virtue. So one example is, for example, uh, <laughs> one example, for example, is courage. <laughs> so imagine that you're you're courageous, but you don't have any of the other virtues. What that means is that you you're face like you're 
in in being confronted with a fear, you um, you act in the face of that fear to do the thing you're afraid of. But let's say that you're not uh, beneficent. Let's say that you're not uh, honest. Let's say that you're not compassionate. None of these things, right? All you are is facing your fears. Well, that just, I mean, that doesn't sound like a virtue at all. That sounds like uh, sort of a, a strength of, say, potentially a serial murderer. Who knows, right? Yeah. It's like when you attribute one of those virtues to somebody, you are almost implicitly saying, and they have the others minimally. Right. Because otherwise, like, for example, I always think of the uh, I think of uh, Bill Maher right after 9-11 calling the 9-11 hijackers courageous. And he 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 meant that in the way that you were just saying only courageous, not kind, like not smart. Right. Just just you can't say that they were fearful. Right. And in that sense, it was true, but it was also setting himself up for being completely misunderstood because most people would say that when you call somebody courageous, you're saying they're also minimally good people in other respects too, right? Right. So that's the unity of virtues. And my claim here is um, following resonance is only a virtue under the unity of epistemic virtues. In other words, you have to have all the other epistemic virtues minimally in order for following resonance to be a good thing. If you don't have those, then following resonance is potentially disastrous. Because all you're doing is you're, you're sort of allowing yourself to be pulled along by this feeling without engaging any of your own evaluative um, machinery, any of your own like evaluative tools. And I've never seen uh, these evaluative tools be described in such a way or never heard them described in such a way that sounds like the balancing that those of Ra and other confederation, confederation entities often talk about. When they talk about balancing, it doesn't seem like it's just, you know, adjusting the scales. It seems like it's an intensive uh, inquiry into the self and, the, and, and, and the, the basis for a lot of the things that you're dealing with. It's useful to, you know, have these qualities that you're balancing, but it's also there's like an incommensurability to those qualities where, you know, you... you you understand that you have to kind of like go off the rails a little bit and do your own thing. I don't know how if I said it very well. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, so when I think of uh, applying the ep- or having having and using the epistemic virtues, I think of a um, of developing a consistent attitude toward the world, in which you are attempting to assemble a picture of the world based on the best reasons available. Um, so the balance of reasons is what philosophers call that. Um, what does the balance of reasons suggest that you should believe? So in the case of, um, I don't know, pick your case. I could choose something, you know, contemporary, but uh, flat earth, here's something, right? What does the balance of reasons suggest um, on the question of flat earth? Well, you could you could trust your own senses and say, well, it looks like it's flat. When I look out at the world, I can't see curvature. Um, but there's plenty of other reasons that speak in the other direction. And and one reason that you might think speaks in the direction of flat Earth is, well, the authorities say things that are wrong all the time. Maybe this is another wrong thing that they say. Um, but that doesn't actually give you reason to believe anything. It, it only, at best, gives you reason to disbelieve. Um, 
And anyway, authorities can say wrong things all the time and still end up being right about things. Moreover, um, wrongness is often communicated in the trappings of rightness. In other words, if, if an authority figure wants you to believe something that's wrong, they'll say lots of things that are right. Anyway, but my point is that in the case of, of Flat Earth, if you were to lay out all the reasons for believing one way or the other on the table, you would see that um, the scales tip heavily in, in the direction of uh, spheroid Earth. I would certainly, certainly agree with that. I, I chose a, an easy example. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's... Um... So there was one, there was one element that the first danger that you talked about, it sounded to like, it sounded to me like you were saying that there's a kind of rigidity that can perhaps occur when you have initial resonance with something. And then you kind of like paste your experience, a kind of two dimensional experience of that resonance onto other things in order to compare, right? Um, and I was also wondering about um, the function in which memory of these resonances does play a role in all of this, because we do have to abstract and, and reason about this stuff without perfect tools. Um, there's a lot of judgment calls being involved. And, I, and it, it, to me, you know, the thing that brings this to mind is there's a really good quo session on discernment. Uh, it's from December 22nd, 1996. And I'm thinking about this passage in particular. Do you mind if I read it? Go ahead. Quo says, when there is that golden moment and the self somehow moves into that space where one is tabernacling with the infinite one, one is in the light and one becomes the love. When those moments occur, we suggest that you write them down in your memory and know that you have gleaned a precious gem from that field which you are digging in. Or know that one of the characters upon the stage has come to life because somewhere in that theater, that little bit of truth was found. Those moments are absolute. They cannot be transferred to another. But for the self, they are tremendously important. For very often, while in the physical illusion, the seeker must run on faith and hope alone. And when this is the case, it is memory that feeds faith and sparks hope. Memory of the self is a blessed gift of the moment and another, and another, and as the years of your incarnation roll by, there is a growing collection of precious, precious gems of the moment in the light, moments when love and the self were not bounded or separate. Now that's using flowery language, um, but what they're, it sounds like what they're saying is you're indexing these resonances in your memory, right? Do you think that, how can we, do, first of all, do, do you think that sound, what they're talking about, this way of using our memory to bring those moments where the resonance is the most pure and the most true and uh, engaging to ourselves? It has that aliveness. It seems like what they're saying is these are the moments that have the most aliveness to you and they need to be like kind of uh, uh, kept in mind as you go about your daily life. Uh, is there anything about how they're approaching that that you think is uh, maybe needs some clarification or uh, should be explicated in some way? Well, as a philosopher, it's my job to draw distinctions and clarify things. So I would say that's almost always true of any communication. I'm still going to ask. <laughs> right. Okay. So I do have a few things to say there. Um, in the first place, uh, notice that the the gems that that uh, Quo was talking about there is, is plural, right? So it's not that you find the one gem. It's not that you find, say, the raw material, and this becomes the thing around which you sort of structure your entire 
um, reality because that would just be one gem. And, right. and, and if, if there were just one gem to find, um, then that would suggest a kind of once and for allness of resonance. Um, but the but the way Quo is talking in there suggests that it's not once and for all, and that what you find is not going to be the totality on any given occasion. Okay, so that's what I think the the plurality is doing there. The second thing um, is the the indexing that you're talking about, and this is really interesting to me, and I think it's right. I think it well, I think if you're going to live a life of faith, it has to be right. Uh, what I mean by that is there has to be some kind of, um, of f- spiritual foundation or some kind of fixed point in your data set that, that when, you're, when you reevaluate all the things that you're, uh, all the features of your perspective, you still have to ask yourself, okay, which of these features of my perspective are not negotiable? Yeah. Um, and so, what do you say? When you're faced with uh, a, a metaphysical world um, that is so um, malleable, that that is so hard to get a grip on, and I think what you say is, well, there are these moments that were so profound that I can't deny them. I think that's what you say. At least that's what I do. Um, so, with the idea that, like, whether we're clear with ourselves about it or not, or explicit with ourselves about it or not. This is how most people most of the time decide what they're going to work with and what they're not, right? Like whether they understand that resonance is involved, they're doing it, right? Hopefully. <laughs> well, I, it's hard to think of somebody like purposely choosing wrong things, although maybe there's, maybe there's some people who program some, some heavy catalysts for themselves in that, in that regard. I don't know. Well, I mean, let's not be too quick here because um, it's very easy to choose against resonance. Uh, and what makes it so easy to choose against resonance is if you have some idea in your mind about what the right thing to do right. is when you're faced with a resonant moment. Like and you've so, already misindexed, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so you might think that this thing that's resonating to you is actually just a temptation that you're supposed to, you know, according to your way of thinking, um, to reject. Right. So the idea would be that if you were to correct that, in some way, it would involve getting to a deeper level in yourself where you might be able to find a, a, a more resonant resonance, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, actually, I think that what resonating with something that is in direct conflict with your, uh, your perspective tells you is that the perspective you're holding no longer resonates. And you I have to be willing what... to kind of like leave that on the f- shop floor if, if it's time to let it go, right? That's right. And, and actually, I have a bit more to say about that. Here's, here's another aspect of the temptation. You might think that um, if some perspective resonates, say, let's, again, I'll just use Ra as an example. Let's say you read Ra and Ra resonates. You might think, well, now I have, like, what resonates is the entirety of what Ra said, like literally everything. And you might just sort of imbibe the, the framework wholesale. Um, and, and think to yourself, well, I can't let it go because here's this thing that resonates. But I think that this is, even though perspectives are holistic, they are sort of an entire thing. I also think that resonance doesn't work that way. It's not like it's, it's not this entire structure that's going to resonate. It's some aspect of it that resonates, um, for you in a way that probably nothing else does. And so there's a sort of a kernel of resonance, if you will. 
or the the uh, the central thing that resonates about something. And eventually, I think as you go on in your intellectual life, um, just attempting to to identify resonance, to follow it, to um, continue to hone your your system of thought, to better um, correspond to the world you live in, to your experiences, to your spiritual experiences and non-spiritual experiences. As you go about this process of continually reshaping and revising your own views, I think what you find, at least this is what I find, what you find is that um, things that you might have taken on wholesale, um, it wasn't the totality of that thing that resonated, it was some smaller part of it that resonated, maybe even the the foundation on which the thing is built. but even so, it's not necessarily the whole thing that resonates. Like, you don't have to take something wholesale if it resonates. Look for the part that does resonate. Is what I is. I don't. I feel like I was answering a question, but I don't know. No, I think you got it. I think you got it. Um, the idea is is that what resonance means is something that always can bear further evaluation. It sounds like to ensure right. that what you are identifying as resonant is actually the thing that's resonant and not just some yes. constituent, right? That's right, yeah. And yeah. I, I think it's real tricky work um, because at least for me, it's been real tricky work. And I have kind of a personal history of taking things on wholesale and only like walking them back slowly later when I realized that actually it wasn't the whole thing that was resonating, it was just some aspect of it. So this this is sort of me speaking my own personal weakness. Oh, no, it's definitely a weakness of mine, too. In fact, it's something that my wife brings up often that I tend to take things of whole cloth. And it's only later that I kind of work out, okay, well, I... It's almost to me like uh, when I come up against a brand new idea that really enlivens me, whether or not I believe it or not, but enlivens me and brings something out and seems interesting, I have to eat it whole. And Same only here. after, yeah, and only after digesting that can I figure out, okay, well, I really like, you know, these are the bones and this is what I actually wanted, you know? And, and, and uh, in that quo uh, channeling, they, they talk about something like this. They talk about, you know, using uh, the illusion of time for this purpose. If I could uh, go ahead and quote another passage. Sure. Certainly allowing time to pass, allowing sequences to build up, is extremely helpful when one is attempting to discern, and there are subtleties that cannot be voiced. The simple allowing of time to pass can bring into your awareness those subjective signals that work only for you, those little nudges that you begin to get when you turn your life over in complete surrender to that truth that you seek and that you wish to be. Now I've now that that quote pulls in a little bit more than what I how I characterized it at first. This idea of surrender to the truth. What that strikes me as is uh, a corollary to the idea of a really deep resonance that is unable to be denied. Right? You can deny it, but then you're denying your own ability to sense your own ability to exist and, and, and perceive at all. Right. This whole, if you're, if, if perception writ large is, is, is suspect, right. Then, 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 then we, we were starting at a different philosophical basis, but considering that our perceptions of our inner resonance can be trusted to some minimal extent, then it's almost like it is a surrender to that, which feels truest. Am I, am I way off base on that? No, I think you're right. And actually, I would even go further and to say that uh, if you don't surrender to resonance, what you're doing is uh, committing to a life 
that feels like a living death. Because, um, I mean, if you, if you choose against something that resonates, what you're choosing is, as Rosa would call it, a muted experience. You're choosing something that isn't alive for you. <clears throat> and this is one of the reasons that I, that I think that uh, we should think of resonance, sorry, following resonance as an intellectual virtue. Um, and that's because I don't think that we can successfully or adequately pursue uh, a way of thinking about the world that doesn't feel alive for us. I think what, what it'll become is just this, um, this chore. And, and I don't know if you've noticed, but whatever you do in the sense of a chore won't be done as well as if you do it in the sense of a, um, a joyful act of, of creation or discovery or something like that. It has to feel alive. Otherwise you're just not going to, your heart's not going to be in it and you won't do a good job. And insofar as we think of uh, constructing our own perspective, our own model of the world as this project that needs to feel alive for us or else we won't do a good job of it, insofar as that's true, then we actually need to follow resonance. Otherwise, we'll never be able to do a good job of formulating our own model of the world. And to me, it seems like the, uh, the value of the spiritual path, such as that laid out by the Confederation, is to give us some concrete things that we can hold on to as we pursue that deeper and deeper resonance so that we can know the ground that we stand on and the ground that we don't stand on, right? Like, in fact, what do they always say? You know, understanding is not of this density. There are going to be some things that resonance alone is going to be your guide on and that you shouldn't expect to, to, to uh, be born out by your, your daily experience necessarily in this very clear way, right? You have to trust in the self. There's a lot of parts in this uh, quo. Have I, have I said something that you would object to? Okay. Carry on. Cool. Um, so the, where I'm going with this is that, well, there's two places in this particular uh, 96 reading that I think are interesting. One is they locate the search for truth and the, uh, uh, capacity for discernment, mostly in the heart. And I was wondering what you thought of that. The other thing that I would like to bring up, if you prefer to deal with it first, is that there's a lot of things in here that say that what makes discernment and finding truth hard is our bodily nature, is our, is, is the fact that we are, uh, spirits inhabiting second density creatures. And that there's, there's a, there's, uh, it seems like they see that as a big impediment to us building discernment a lot of times. Is it either of those things? So the second one, actually, I have less to say about. I'm not sure what, I'm not sure what to say at all about the bodily influence. Awesome. Let's talk the about first, the heart. I have then. something to say. Let's talk about the heart. So I think that that's exactly right. Um, that discernment has. So, so I've, I've mentioned already um, the, the need for uh, when evaluating your own perspective, because if you're evaluating your, your perspective, then what you're evaluating is a kind of, um, is, is the whole thing. Like everything is on the table. Everything is up for negotiation. And so the question becomes, if everything that I believe or every, every aspect of what the way I see the world is up for negotiation, where, where's my stability? Like, what do I, what am I rooted in? And, and it's easy to just sort of like lose your sense of identity. Who even am I if I don't believe these things? So we need things to ground us. Um, and I've already mentioned, uh, and just, I should say, Quo has mentioned, and I've agreed with, um, the importance of identifying moments of profundity as grounding, 
But I think also, and and this is again an aspect of that quo uh, um, channeling. I think also what you need is a kind of um, moral commitment or a, a way of, of thinking about the fundamental purpose of your life. Um, and, and this kind of thing, I think, has to be at the center of your perspective, and it has to be the thing around which you build your perspective around. So in other words, I don't think it's a good idea to try to decide your purpose based on some myth that you believe. I think it goes the other way around. I think you you feel what your what your calling in this world is, or you feel what is most morally important, and then your myth has to conform to that. And I think that's what Quo is saying there. So centering in the heart, that to, I mean, that's just centering compassion, centering uh, empathy, and uh, concern for the well-being of others. Like to me, that's a, a moral motivation. Yeah, if I could um, just uh, read some Quo here that I think would back that up. Uh, Quo says, All that is unknown in spiritual discernment does indeed lie safely, most deeply, within the heart, within that great center within which you may visualize as a tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the holy of holies, in which resides the creator, the great original thought, unconditional love. Something about um, that really, really uh, resonates with me, but um, I have trouble uh, mapping that out to a philosophical concept necessarily, right? Yeah, so I think this is the way I'm interpreting it. And and I mean, you know, God bless Carlos. He was such a, a, a Christian through and through. I, I, I have my own like religious trauma and, and would never use that kind of... Um, language to describe these ideas. Yeah. But anyway, um, so here's what I think. I think that what we have to always keep in mind, and this is, this is true whether you're reading the Confederation uh, channelings, it's true whether you are a you know an adherent of some kind of religion, what we have to keep in mind is that myths, the mythology of your of whatever, like whatever your spiritual view is. It's not literally true. In other words, it's a, it's some kind of simplification um, for, for the purpose of your making sense of this confusing and complex world that we live in. And, you know, call them gods, call them uh, higher dimensional aliens, call them whatever you want to call them, right? There's, there's these other inhabitants of the universe. And they have relationships to each other and to you, and you're never going to wrap your head around all of that. Uh, so that's what the myth is for, is to sort of approximate that kind of um, reality. But your myth, because it's only ever an approximation, and an approximation that you come to through you know, some kind of act of faith, that shouldn't be the center of your spiritual experience, because it's just so flimsy. The center of your experience, of your spiritual experience shouldn't be flimsy. It should be rock solid. And in my experience, the most rock solid thing there is, is the importance of um, upholding the dignity of other human beings, of attending to, uh, to the vulnerable, of um, making the world a better place for those who have it hardest, and so on and so on, right? And this is all heart stuff. So in my mind, that's like, that's the 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 unmovable core 
uh, around which any spiritual view, I think, or any service to other spiritual views should be assembled. And everything else is, in some ways, dispensable, uh, except for that core. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, And it's that core that I think, if I had to say that when something resonates within me, what I'm looking for is a resonance as close to that core as I can determine in the moment in what conscious waking reality. And that's why I think that's another reason why I think the Confederation uh, uh, suggests meditation so much. The, the more still that we can get, the more that we can calm our minds and stop invoking that myth or model or concept through which to mediate spirit, right? Through which to mediate this feeling, uh, you know, that it's a good instrument for that, for the purpose of, of bringing spirit into life through these constructs, through these myths. But when you want to get down to the real veracity of the situation, uh, the real the real depth of the feeling. I mean, at the end of the day, I think we're all looking for that feeling of rightness, right? And I think it's uh, it's at that level that uh, the Confederation urges us to be our own authorities on that matter, to look within and to find, not just to look within and find something that we can use to justify whatever we want to think, whatever we want to do, but to look within it with honesty and courage and integrity and to try to get down to the lowest level that we can, because that level will be as close to the level that other people have within them, I believe, as possible, right? The idea being that, after all, Joseph, I am going to articulate a substrate, right? <laughs> Where this resonance uh, moves over between us. And there, I do think that as much as I know that that's a myth, and that's a concept complex that I've invented, it is useful, right, in sort of talking about why, when I have the deeper conversations with my friends, that something is different than when we just talk about, you know, the weather or something, right? Sounds right. Yeah, there's not a lot of follow-up. <laughs> not with Jeremy monologues. Um, yeah, I'm really missing you, Ryan. Uh, you have a way of just moving things forward, and I'm 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 a I'm a host who is wanting in that area. But I really appreciate your patience with me, uh, Joseph. I think we're making some. I think we're covering some entirely new ground here for the podcast. This is amazing. Cool. Um, Glad to serve. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of when I think we've we've given this enough treatment. I do feel like there's something that I'm leaving out, and I wish I had better notes. Um, can can we talk about the raw quotation? Uh, absolutely. 69.1, I think. Or yes, that would be great. Um, would you like me to read it? Yes. Okay. And you, you, it might even be helpful to read Don's question. Yes, I will do that. So this is uh, session 61. Uh, question nine and Don's one point nine. Yep. And Don says, this brings out the point of the purpose of the physical incarnation, I believe. And that is to reach a conviction through your own thought processes as to a solution to problems and understandings in a totally unbiased and totally free situation with no proof at all, or anything that you would consider proof proof being a very poor word in itself. Can you expand on my concept? And those of Ra say, I am Ra. Your opinion is an eloquent one, although somewhat confused in its connections between the freedom expressed by subjective knowing and the freedom expressed by subjective acceptance. There's a significant distinction between the two. 
This is not a dimension of knowing, even subjectively. Due to the lack of overview of cosmic and other inpourings, which affect each and every situation which produces catalyst, the subjective acceptance of that which is at the moment and the finding of love within that moment is the greater freedom. That known as the subjective knowing without proof is, in some degree, a poor friend. For there will be anomalies no matter how much information is garnered due to the distortions which form third density. Okay, so that's the end of the excerpt. I love this quotation. So one of the reasons I love it is this the kind of centrality that Don is giving to the concept of conviction. And um, actually in the religious tradition in which I was raised, conviction was treated as a good thing. But here Ra is basically calling... I, I think what Ra is responding to is the notion of conviction, and they're calling it a poor friend. And if you think about, and this is something I think about a lot, the, the difference between conviction and acceptance, um, and the, it, 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 the two are almost opposed to one another, because um, if you have convictions, that, that means that it, it almost implies that you're not willing to let them go, um, which means that there's something that can come along in your life that you, that you may very well refuse to accept because you have these convictions. And I think this points to one of the intellectual virtues that uh, I've come to appreciate more and more in the most re- in in these past couple years, uh, and that's the virtue of what you might call fallibility. And this seems like it's a, a vice uh, or like a, a lamentable condition of the human, sorry, a lament, lamentable aspect of the human condition. But the sense in which is a virtue is to keep before your mind at all times the fallibility of human thinking, of human conceptualization, of our methods of, of coming to know. They are, they are far more fallible than, you, than most people, I think, realize. And I think that's what's, what Ra is getting at there, is that no matter how robust your... Um, your scientific approach for discerning the true truth and, you know, forming convictions around it, there's still going to be some anomalies. Uh, in other words, all of your methods are fallible. And, and so even, even your best, meth- best methods, uh, which do include lots of evidence or proof, as Don was calling it, even those methods are fallible. So what about the methods that don't have proof? Do you really want conviction there? Yeah, I see what you mean. It's almost like we are revisiting one of those two dangers, those two philosophical dangers you talked about earlier with the rigidity of your indexing of a, of a piece of resonance, right? Um, the subjective knowing and the clinging to it could be seen to be that kind of uh, rigidity that we were talking about earlier. Um, I also noticed that they, uh, they, they bring up catalyst here. And I was wondering, uh, do you have any thoughts on how catalyst, the process of catalysis works with um, this this process of resonance and, and discernment? Well, okay, yeah, sure. I, I think, and it's a simple answer, um, I think resonance is a catalytic experience. Um, it's, it's a kind of catalyst. That is simple. All right. I don't think I don't think all catalyst is going to be resonant. That's definitely not true. But I do think it's a kind of catalyst. It, well, the reason I bring it up uh, is because there, it, Quo in that '96 session places a lot of emphasis on the mirroring of other selves 
in figuring out what is true and what is not for yourself. And it seems to me that this is uh, uh, underscoring your concept of fallibility, right? What are the one of the ways that we can figure out uh, the surface area of our fallibility? Well, the, the mirror images that we're getting from other selves, the way that they are showing us things that we don't like might clash or uh, uh, resonate with those things that we believe and hold to be true and hold to be dear. And uh, I was just wondering uh, if that would be a good place to uh, to go with this. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, part of having a, a fallibilistic approach to um, to your thinking is also to be fallible, fallibilistic about yourself. Um, you can't you can't expect that you have the total story about yourself in just the same way that you can't expect that you have the total story about the world around you. Uh, and that creates a lot of space for the value of someone else's view of you. Yeah. Um, and there's there's two ways you can think of mirroring. I mean, you can think of of mirroring in what you see in another, but you can also think of mirroring in what the other says about you or or describes as their perception of you. And I think those are two different, equally valuable mirrors. And somebody who has a fallibilistic approach will incorporate those into their own judgments about the reality about themselves. And just to, the, like, I am very worried about blind spots. Uh, yeah. And so, and and I think just this, my appreciation for the fallibilistic, um, the virtue of being fallibilistic, I think, has, has made me uh, attendant or at least concerned about blind spots. I'm not going to say I'm always attended to them. I think I still have them. No, what I, what I think we, what you're articulating is a um, two-level error theory. There's an error theory that applies to the Confederation and to their messages coming through. But there's also an error theory on your side about how you're working with any of this and where you're finding the resonance and where you're using... Um, because an error theory implies that there's some way to get right and some way to get wrong, right? Like, and that we have an idea of what that means. And so I'm interested in the way that, uh, that we've made this very complex in a way, A. B, uh, that there is a role that we play and the role that waking life plays in this uh, uh, winnowing down of what's resonant and what's not, right? Does that make any sense? Am I just free associating here? <laughs> I, I think so. I, I do want to remind you that um, an error theory is something that you that you establish to explain a situation where the truth is not what most people think the truth is. Oh, I see. So you, you need to explain why most people get it wrong. That's what an error theory does. I see. This is this is a way that you account for um, disputes within the peer group that's looking at this, right? Okay. Right. So, so for example, actually, and I do think some error theory might come into play in using the mirror. If everybody is saying something about you that you think is wrong, well, then you need an error theory to explain why they all see this in you. Ah, that's good. That's good. But also that's a temptation because I, I wonder if, um, I wonder if at that point it's, it's time to look for the truth in what everybody seems to be saying. That see this this is exactly what I was uh, feeling, but I couldn't give good words to. It's this like two. You could be wrong on either or both side of this, right? <laughs> you could be you could be wrong on like uh, uh, how you're interpreting resonance 
and comparing that to what you're experiencing in the outer world. But you could also be wrong about the outer world and what it's, uh, how it's comparing to your inner resonance. Like there's so many levels at which you can, you can get this wrong and you can understand why people despair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have my own temptations to despair when it comes to the nature of the world and what we're even doing here. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I'm not immune from to, to any of this. Well, um, I, there's a, there's a good, uh, quote excerpt on the way that other selves mirror. And, uh, I, I, I don't know if it's completely, uh, speaks to this, but I have a feeling that we're getting towards wrapping up. And so I'm just going to read this. And then if we think of any other things you want to talk about, that's fine. All right. So this is Quo from the 96 session. It is very helpful in pursuing truth to work with those entities with which you come into contact for as long as you are thinking internally and turning the gaze inward, the mirrors with which others offer to you are not used. It is very difficult for one within the tangle of life that each entity creates in his incarnation to see that tangle in a balanced and helpful way. However, those others with whom you share your environment have the happy faculty of being mirrors without effort. For you shall catch off of their mirroring only those images that provoke reaction within you. And as you react to those entities seemingly outside of yourself, you may know that you are now working in an area where there is something to work on. Your interest has been awakened, perhaps crudely, sorry, perhaps rudely. Perhaps you do not like what you see. Perhaps you love what you see. Either way, you as a seeker have been served by the mere being of the other, who without any effort whatsoever is able to show you the truth that is hidden within you. When you have the untoward or the negative reaction, take that gift and look at it, look it over, for it has much to tell you. That's the end of the excerpt. Uh, any thoughts on that? No, I like that one a lot, though. Yeah, I like it too, uh, because it. I, 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 this is kind of like was the most fraught topic that I wanted to discuss, which is like we can talk all about this resonance within ourselves, and there's a good language in our culture right now, especially in the wider New Age Age movement, uh, to stake out one's personal truth in contradistinction to everything else, right? And say, well, that's true for me. Um, and what I'm really interested in is, well, okay, if things are true for you and you, and you have, uh, uh, landed upon that as a, a matter of faith and, and we don't want to discourage faith necessarily, right? Um, how do you use the process of, uh, phenomenal experience of running into other selves and having them reflect back things that throw you off guard, that, that throw you off your center? How can we incorporate that into the process of finding that inner truth so that we can stay on that beam? Right? Yeah. And I, I think the, the, the essence of, of what I've been, of the view that I've been suggesting that I think is discoverable in the Confederation material is that this business about um, what's true for you, all that is is, a, uh, is your model of reality. So, and again, I'm, I'm wary of even using the word truth there, even though it's become commonplace. Um, and so, so what, we're, what you're really saying is, this is how I think about the world, or this is how I, how I understand the world. And it's always subject to change, um, because we're always updating our models. It's always subject to transformation because some resonant 
experience may shatter what you once thought. I mean, this happens. Um, so this inner truth, I think of as, or, or pursuing this inner truth, I think of more as, um, as like the, the, the human journey toward um, a more functional or a more suitable model of reality um, through which we think about our relationship to the world and to each other. And, and on that way of thinking, there's lots of space for, um, for allowing information from others to affect your model. So I, I'm actually very wary of, of this, this idea of my personal truth being a kind of armor that I wear that uh, prevents me from, or, or that allows me to just dismiss what other people say. Um, I'm very wary of this because in my mind, that kind of, um, it, it cuts off a valuable source of information that might allow you to, to revise your own model. Yeah. If you were to, uh, think of other selves as mirrors and, uh, as the very, one of the very means by which a, uh, an attitude of fallibility is actually realized concretely and not just as a theory. Uh, then I think you're on good ground. I think I think you're on solid ground, um, and, and and you can tell that like if you're if you're going within, if you're going deep within, you're seeing how you feel. You're going without into the world, and you're running into things that disturb you. You, you know, you're building up a lot to work with here, uh, both within and without. And it just seems like, um, you know, this is all giving you grist for the mill, and then. What do you do with that crest, right? I mean, the only thing that I can think of is you need to sit with it, that there's some role that time and patience takes in unfolding this, uh, the, 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 the scroll of your life and your awareness and, um, like bringing into fruition, uh, understandings that move your evolution forward. I mean, we're, we're assuming, I, uh, you know, that this is all about, um, a spiritual evolutionary path from a point where things are darker, less clear, um, less defined, less sophisticated to one where it's clearer and more sophisticated and more, uh, distinct and, and all that. It, am, am I just rattling off the mouth now? Uh, I, I, I don't know what to say. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's what I'm afraid of. I'm always afraid of that because for me, I can like wrestle with these ideas all day, but I'm trying to have a conversation about something that I would normally just use on my own. So, and, and that's how a lot of these uh, conversations on the podcast are. They kind of get me out of the point where I can say something useful. And that's what I am terrified of. So <laughs> you're doing fine. Okay. So I, I do think it's time to wrap up though. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think, uh, Jeremy needs his baba here. So, um, I want to thank you, Joseph, so much for, uh, coming on the podcast. I know that this is uh, a new experience for you, uh, with all the recording stuff and you've handled it. Awesome. Just make sure that you hit save right after this is over because <laughs> I've done right. that before. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. All right. And, uh, so the schedule for inaudible is still kind of up in the air. Um, I do want to announce that Ryan, uh, and his wife did have their baby last week. Um, her name is Thea and she looks adorable and everybody's doing great. And I'm checking in with Ryan every once in a while in a way that I'm trying not to be annoying about it. 
Um, but I'm still going to give him time. There's no, no, uh, no indication of when he'll be coming back to recording. I imagine when we see some new living love and light episodes come out, that that will be an indication that he's, uh, inching back in. But, uh, I've got some other interviews lined up, so we're just going to get these out as we can. I'm going to get this out as quickly as I can. And in the meantime, friends, please stay in the love and light.